0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, overcoming our culture's war on the American family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician, Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm
0: Kevin McClendon, and I'm sitting here almost motionless, Wade, because I don't want to mess up the ridiculously elaborate costume that I've donned just for this week's episode.
1: Wow. Well, uh, Kevin, I'm actually dressed up as a Viking, and in my hand,
0: I'm simultaneously holding both fire and ice that's pretty impressive. I just have this giant glass orb that I'm holding here, but I like your idea much better. Listeners, on this episode, we're reviewing the new Will Ferrell starring
1: film from David Dopkin, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story
0: of Fire Saga. But before that, we've got something that's maybe a little bit more muted in style. It's the new film from Seeing and Believing favorite, Hirokazu Koreeda, his first non-Japanese language film, The Truth. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 254
1: of Seeing and Believing, Air Guitar Solo Exit. I
0: don't remember. You were just a baby. And you, Daddy? No, I've never been here before. The house looks like a castle. It does?
1: Yes, even though there's a prison just behind it. David, visit je je peut-être euh, vous, vous laisser alors
0: non aucune importance
1: c'est ma fille avec sa petite famille ah, elle, elle a épousé cet acteur oh acteur c'est
0: un bien grand mot
1: welcome yes listeners we are here episode 254 that was a clip from here Korada's the truth we're going to get to that review here in a minute and later on in the show kevin we kind of joked about it but we are going to be reviewing Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga. The name alone sold me. Right there,
0: <laughs> it's definitely a, a, a title of epic length. <laughs> well, we do begin with a look,
1: as I mentioned earlier, of Hirokazu Koreeda's *The Truth*, starring Catherine Deneuve, Juliette Binoche, and Ethan Hawke. The truth tells the story of, as the official synopsis records, a stormy reunion that occurs between an actress and her daughter after the actress publishes her memoirs. Kevin, this is the fifth Core Ada film that we have reviewed in five years on the the podcast. It's hard to believe that we've been doing this for five years, but we have gotten five films from... An individual who's become one of my favorite directors. That's just—it's kind of hard to believe. What a time
0: to be alive! (laughs) And it's a time to be alive in which Hirokazu Koreeda can actually precede his name with Palm Door winner Ah. Hirokazu Koreeda. So that's another great gift of our times, you might say. Mm, Yeah. No, it is. It's definitely. uh, We think about
1: 2020, all the things happening. At least we have. Uh, Core Ada. I I say that crossing
0: my fingers. Uh, I'm worried. (laughs) I don't want to jinx him right now. (laughs) Uh, Find a a piece of wood and knock on it as hard as you can right now. (laughs) Okay, so I want
1: to get us started in in probably a pretty simple uh, way. So we have reviewed five of his films. A couple of those movies have landed on our top ten lists of the year, their respective years. And I wanted to ask you this. How do you think the truth stacks up against kore uh, core Ada's
0: other recent work? Uh, I've found it to be a, a really impressive uh, bit of work from core Ada, not least because like we mentioned in the intro, this is his first film that he's made with a non-Japanese cast and in a language that isn't Japanese. This is, uh, primarily shot in French, although there's uh, some English in it as well, uh, mostly involving the scenes with Ethan Hawke as the American husband to Juliette Binoche's uh, French screenwriter. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that can, uh, I don't want to say go wrong with, with that situation, but theres you don't necessarily expect a director to have as sure of a hand when working uh, in a context that is maybe a little bit outside of his comfort zone for the first time as you would when he's kind of more in his element. But I have to say, Cora really does a great job with this film. And I think that he finds a really effective way to take some of his pet themes and concerns. I mean, he's, Pretty well known for being a director who is very interested in family dynamics and the various ways that family can be formed and that family can be disrupted. And I think the way that he explores that through this film is it's familiar if you've seen his other films, uh, as, you know, of course, any of the ones that we've talked about on the show, but over his entire body of work. But he also finds a very fresh way into that by essentially making this a family of dramatists and actors and examining, well, how do you navigate true feelings and uh, try to parse through kind of the veil of artifice? when you're dealing with a family who are professionally dramatic and uh, putting on a facade. And I, f- I find that really interesting. And I think that the film does a really good job of exploring it that way. It's
1: funny because when Benoche's character arrives at her mother's house in France with Ethan Hawke, they they look at at this, this sort of grand building, which, which is close to the city, but it almost feels like this other world. Like you forget that you're in, you're in Paris, you're near the subway, as one character notes. Uh, she looks at this castle building, and she says, yeah, sure, it looks like a castle, but there is a, quote, prison behind it. And from that moment forward, I'm like, okay, this is going to be one of those juicy, emotional, Cora Ada pictures about family. And it's going to be complicated because family is complicated. And I mean, the film is named the truth for a reason. When we look back at our relationships with our family members, and we look back at at our memories, what really happened? What's the truth and what's fiction? And I love how you mentioned the artifice of them being these actors and screenwriters who are playing characters and creating stories, how does that affect the way that they interact with each other? And uh, the mother played by Catherine uh, uh, Deneuve, she has published her memoirs, and they aren't exactly in in the opinion of Benoche's character an accurate representation of what happened. There are people... Who were important in their lives that are left out of that book, and this is this is a way of an interpreting and, and explaining uh, memory. And I just I I, I really dug it. I, I don't know if I liked it as much as I like Shoplifters. Uh, Shoplifters though is uh, you know amazing film, and it kind of grows on me uh, the more I think about it. But I, I think the truth is probably one of the better films of 2019. Oh, sorry. T- Two thousand
0: and twenty. I don't know. I don't even know what time it is. Time is a social construct. Uh, Two thousand and twenty. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No. That that totally makes sense, and I'm I'm largely on board with that with you on that. Um, uh, Shoplifters is is probably the the better film, but I think one thing that I really appreciate about the truth is that. Uh, it's a little bit uh, spikier, I guess, than a lot of Koreeda films. Like in, in a lot of his other films, he tends to be—he's a very gentle filmmaker, I guess—is the way I, I often think about him. Uh, his his characters aren't perfect, and the, his worlds aren't sanitized. But coming away from a Koreeda film, you come away kind of being reminded of the potential of human beings to be warm towards each other despite the obstacles that come in their way and the obstacles that they set up themselves. With The Truth, he goes a little bit more... Um, like, the the family is maybe a little bit more dysfunctional. Catherine Deneuve is really great in this role as uh, an actress who is, uh, in some ways, a, a very selfish person. Just not selfish in the sense that she's constantly... Um, uh, thoughtless to the people around her although she, she kind of is it's more she's just she doesn't tend to think of others very much she's just very focused on maintaining a certain image of herself and focused on her work as a famous film actress and to the extent that other people even enter into that life at all they're kind of they're they're almost like set dressing in the great play of her life. And I think that Corey Aida's characters tend not to be quite this um, oblivious or selfish in his other films. And I found the fact that he he puts a character like this at the center of this film to be a refreshing change of pace and also a way for him to explore these pet themes in ways that kind of refresh them and open up. Some aspects of his overall body of work that hadn't really occurred to me before. In, namely, the, the artifice that goes into a family, like how family and shoplifters can kind of be cobbled together out of people who aren't necessarily all related to each other. In this one, uh, it's kind of dealing taking that theme of artifice and foregrounding it in a way that I found very intriguing.
1: Yeah, so it's, you know, Shoplifters is all these people are not related and they act like a family. In this film, all these people are related, but they don't act like a family. And it's just, it's wonderful how uh, Coretta puts these pieces together. And it's a testament to his talent and Danube's talent as a performer that she is so selfish, so self-centered. And you did a good job of explaining, hey, like the world revolves around her. They are, everyone else, uh, they are side characters in her show. And yet we enjoy watching her and we don't hate her. There's, there's something to that. And we wonder if there's, if there's hope, maybe there's reconciliation. It's going to be kind of messy and it won't be perfect, but maybe people could start to act like family. And I, I think that's a a great way to go about telling this story. And notice too, that this film is bookended by a religious question. Family, time, seasons, aging, all of that is viewed through the lens of what happens after it's all over. A reporter is asking uh, Danu's character uh, what she hopes to be told by God When she reaches the pearly gate. And this conversation happens at the very end of the film. And she kind of, you know, bypasses the conversation. But she says later that she would sell her soul for a role. But she says, I would not sell my body for that role. So this, she has this very, uh, almost uh, naturalistic mindset. At the end of the movie, she says, she, she speaks again about that question. And it really is a great way to think about our relationships as we are going throughout life and our calling and what we, f- we're, we feel like we're here to do on Earth. It, it's all going to pass. It's all going to be gone. And we get some great shots at the beginning and the end of this film of, of trees. We're in the, this beautiful Paris fall, autumn, and these trees are starting to lose their, their leaves, and she... Binoche's character, uh, she's aging. Uh, She doesn't have 50 years left. She maybe has a couple decades left, if if that long. And she has to look back at her life and make sense of it. And that goes into the theme of, of memory making and the way that we perceive history and the way that we organize history. We try to make sense of what has happened. We make sense of our choices. And when we do that, we usually reconfigure those decisions around ourselves and we don't judge ourselves very harshly because that would mean we didn't live a great life and so this character is kind of wrestling with that while her daughter is there and and you know her daughter played by binoche is like you weren't a good mom you have failed me in many ways uh can they get past that that's what uh, coreta is is trying to examine throughout this movie
0: yeah the conversations about the passage of time that crop up throughout this film are uh, very intriguing and give just really do a great job of underlining essentially the 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 central struggle of or not the central struggle. the one of the central questions, I guess that lies at the heart of the film is is sort of like what gives? Our lives' meaning, and for Deneuve's character, it, it's basically her art is is what gives her life meaning. It's not her family, her relationships. The question that she's asked at the beginning of the film about what she would like to hear from God when she reaches the pearly gates, she doesn't really even really engage with that question. She immediately zeroes in on well, where would you get that question from? That's from this other you know like celebrity interview program. I, I feel like I've heard that one before. And she doesn't engage with the deeper spiritual question at all. It's all kind of seen through this prism of, of acting and show business and the here and now. And over the course of the film, Coriida kind of throws in these touches where it's made clear that that, that is not the, a full picture of a flourishing life. And there's lots of other characters who are aging over the course of the film as well there's a conversation that uh, this family has with a uh, restaurant owner in the la- later in the film where he's also aging and he's talking about how he wants to retire because his sense of taste isn't what it once was and whereas Deneuve's character kind of rages against the dying of the light she's kind of struggling with feelings of inadequacy next to this younger actress who's a co-star in a movie she's doing right now. That's really contrasted with the attitude of some of these other characters where they kind of recognize that they're aging and that things change and that seasons pass, and they're kind of okay with that. And they've found, they've made their peace with that and they kind of have found their way towards a, a life and a perspective that kind of ha- has everything in its proper place. And Corey's ability to suggest that uh, through various relationships and conversations in this film is just—I I found it to be very elegant.
1: Yeah, and I—I I appreciate the way that he examines memory in this film and the way that we reinterpret those events. And you know, I've got five siblings, and it's fascinating when we get together. There's this sense that sometimes we're telling stories, and collectively we help each other remember what happened and it's 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 really kind of amazing to see that and it's kind of amazing too within families how collectively we become stronger together because one person knows how to do something and the other person knows how to do something and where this one's weak that one is is strong but there are also so many moments when Every one of us have a different version of the same events. And we found a way to interpret it according to our own narratives about ourselves. And so it's the point where, no, I am, you know, I am for sure it did not happen that way. That's not what happened. And the other person is convinced otherwise. And we get that sense here that there are events that are trickier to understand. And what we do, too, is with with memory, we will uh, seek to create, take events, and create them into or turn them into metaphors for entire relationships. And so that's how we categorize. That's how we understand or simplify our world. And here we have this kind of running conversation about a production that Benosha's character was in when she was younger um, over The Wizard of Oz. And that became this kind of big deal. It's her illustration for how her mother was not present for her. But then we learn something else a little bit later, and it changes that entire metaphor. And so she begins to wonder, okay, I've got to reassess my relationship with my mom And how I put that, you know, into a category and how I added these metaphors and added these events. Where is the truth? Now, uh, Danu's character doesn't—she doesn't seem like she's a good mom by any means, uh, a a great mom. But might she be closer to the center than Binoche's character thinks? And that is a really fascinating topic that I just really enjoyed thinking about and it reminds me i'm reading a winston churchill biography i think it's andrew roberts is the author and winston churchill wrote a biography on his father and essentially he reinterpreted his father's life through his lens and and talked it was as if he was talking about himself through his father and i think we we do that and i just love kind of seeing a film wrestle with some of those ideas and uh and to kind of come through and, and really cause me to think how well how do i interpret the past and how do i look at things and through rose-colored glasses or maybe the opposite and and that's what we get here with with the truth
0: well essentially what Coreyda is doing with this this whole i this whole thing that he's playing with here the the idea that memory is is sort of a story that we tell ourselves to make sense of our lives or to provide a a frame for what we've experienced. And his great insight in bringing that to the fore in a story about an actress and her screenwriter daughter is he essentially uh, kind of explores the idea, well, what's kind of the dividing line between art and real life? Because we, we think of art as kind of being like constructed emotion, something that Puts, has a tidy narrative, a beginning and an end point, when in reality, you know, real life isn't like that. Real life's a lot more messy. And Koreeda kind of says, well, maybe not exactly. Maybe the, the memories that Binoche is, is having of her relationship with her mother, maybe that's her screenwriter instinct kicking in and kind of m- making her real life into a story that's a little bit more, understandable for her similarly denou's character she kind of sees everything through the prism of of her art and so there's a a really funny sequence in this film where she has to kind of figure out how to apologize to somebody whom she's wronged and she can't do it (laughs) Mm -hmm. unless somebody else writes her a script and then she can interpret the text as she puts it, which I think is just Mm. such a great little turn of phrase that she doesn't say, you know, I'm going to read your apology or I'm just going to memorize your apology. She says, I'm going to interpret your text. And that's how she's going to apologize. It's just a wonderful character moment. And it's also a really, you know, almost cheeky way for Cora Ada to say that, you know, a lot of the the emotions that we think of as as true or a lot of the ways that we sort of psych ourselves up to do certain things and conduct certain relationships, maybe there's a little bit more artifice there than we want to admit to ourselves. And maybe even more provocatively, maybe that's not such a horrible thing. Like Mm. maybe if, if our instinct is to recoil a little bit from that idea, Corey is maybe trying to reassure us a little bit and go, well, okay, different people do things different ways. And that might be all right. And I think that 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 kind of reassurance at the end where there's another situation where a character says something very nice and loving to somebody else and then in the next scene we find out that that was written for her as well. <laughs> I think that that that's just it's a, it's almost like a plot twist and mm. I I I just had to grin at that. I thought it was a really great touch.
1: And we were we were talking before we started recording, about the film within the film. And so, uh, Danu's character, she's shooting a film, and it's a science fiction story where a mother to a young daughter has to go to outer space because she has a terminal illness, and she can only come back to Earth every seven years. In space, she doesn't age. So she's able to meet her daughter through her daughter's various stages of life. And this definitely affects Danu's character because it centers on this mother-daughter relationship. and she's working through her relationship with her daughter. Age has caused her to reassess her role as a mother as much as she can reassess that role. And then towards the end, uh, we do get uh, Danu's character, and she is speaking to someone who's supposed to be her mother, but who's older than or younger than her. And I, I just love those scenes. They're just so fantastic. Watching some incredible performers at work and the dialogue, it just it feels right for the story that Coretta is trying to tell. It's this science fiction movie, but yet the characters are interpreting those lines through their own emotions. And so what they're playing on screen is fake, But in some ways, it's it's real, and that's fascinating. I I really enjoyed watching those movies, and it just uh, those scenes in the in the movie, and uh, it it just it's another great metaphor for what Correa is is trying to say, and he's kind of doing it in a couple different ways.
0: Yeah, and it it's interesting how he's able to use kind of this film within a film as a way to it, it. speaks in, in different there there are different layers to it. I mean there's the obvious layer that the the film within a film is about mother-daughter relationships and of course Coreda is telling a story about a mother-daughter relationship. That's one fairly obvious level, but there's also uh on on another level, there's the undercurrent of essentially Deneau's character is anxious about growing old and dying she if she thinks about it she tries not to think about it as evidenced by that her refusal to answer that reporter's question at the beginning of the film but you you know that there's a lot of anxiety that she has over aging and sort of losing her ability to act and losing the uh the power that she had with that came with her youth and her acting abilities and the way that the film within a film kind of finds a way to reconcile that as well and bring some sort of closure to it is really interesting. It doesn't necessarily tie everything nicely with a bow. There's a a late scene where their two characters are kind of having a, a moment of reconciliation. And then, uh, character, you know, stops, kind of stops the moment goes like, Oh, I wish that I had had this experience before doing this one big scene, because then I can use these emotions. I'm feeling (laughs) to make my performance that much better. And as she's saying that she's in the foreground and the, the other person that she's with is kind of out of focus in the background. And Corita is kind of saying like, she's, she's, getting better but she's not you know suddenly a different person she's still there's still going to be some part of her that's always going to be at least a little fundamentally selfish and he doesn't there's no judgment there and there's a real clear eyed view of his characters that I think we get throughout Corey body of work and that I really appreciate where he presents his characters as they are and he loves them without feeling the need to make them fully uh, perfect or to give them some sort of uh, tidy resolution
1: Yeah I, I love the line that the character says I think I can do it better now and if this is a film about reassessing the past of course we're gonna say that I think I if I could go back and do it again I I could do it better I think if there's one aspect of the movie that I'd like to see a little more of I enjoyed Ethan Hawk's character he he calls himself a, a two-bit, a television actor. Uh, he acts for a living, but he's not famous by any means. He struggles with some demons. I love the scenes where he he's trying to track the conversations. He knows a little bit of French, but not enough to carry everything word for word and so he's he's trying to watch body language he's trying to catch words here i would have loved to explore his character a little bit more because there seemed to be a lot of emotional territory right there but i i, I like this film a lot and uh, i would encourage our listeners to check it out listeners the Truth is releasing today on VOD. You can rent it. We would love for you to watch it and share your thoughts about the movie. Make sure to tweet us at Seabeliefpod at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to review, I'm going to say the whole title here, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, here in just a minute. <laughs> Listeners, we want to take an opportunity to say a big thanks for supporting us via our Patreon campaign. However you support the show, whether it's just a review or maybe you share an episode with a friend or you become a monthly donor on Patreon, we just we want to say that we appreciate all that you do for the podcast. If you hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, you can check out our Patreon campaign. We've got a number of different donation levels with perks, and one of those is our what you can buy for
0: $5 level. Kevin, I, I wanted to ask you, what-, what could you buy for 5 bucks? <laughs> well, I-, I do have to say that having watched the Eurovision movie that we're going to talk about here in the second segment, mm-hmm. I have... Tons of ideas after oh, watching man. that movie for five dollar yes. ideas because that is that movie has opened up a whole world of Eurovision craziness to me and I feel like a whole crop of five dollar ideas could be uh, gleaned from that. I think uh, this time around though five bucks would get you a uh, a tiny little valkyrie helmet for uh, a pet hamster a pet gerbil maybe if you have a a cat or something you can get an extra large one just stick it on there and let it uh live its nordic dreams in style
1: okay this is a totally a texas thing but we have an office in a house and we have a, a pretty big backyard uh and we have an armadillo that comes onto the property and just kind of digs right outside our window. Could I buy a hat for that guy? That's my question.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, really, armadillos are almost like uh, a suit of armor themselves, like just walking around. So I feel like it would oh. almost be like gilding the lily to put uh, a winged helmet or something on it. But, yeah. Hey, I am, I, I'm, I'm, it's far be it from me. To police you and your armadillo time. Yeah. You do whatever you feel you need to. It it would be kind of like putting a bulletproof
1: vest on Superman. Like, it just is kind of (laughs) weird. Yeah, a little bit. Aesthetically, definitely pleasing. Yeah, definitely a home run. (laughs) We'll maybe do that. Listeners, you can take your $5. You can also put it into our Patreon campaign. Like I mentioned before, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing. Underscore podcast.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Thank you, uh, listeners, for listening to us week in and week out for our crazy $5 ideas and also our movie opinions as well, I guess. We actually got a pretty nice piece of listener feedback pretty recently, Wade. Occasional listener uh, Seth Tihani had a chance recently to catch up with one of the films in our South Korean Movie Marathon, episode 242, that was the one where we reviewed Kim Ki-duk's Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring, Seems so long ago, Wade, but Seth caught up with it and uh, had this to say. He said, I liked it. It was nice to revisit the film through your episode. I've seen it several times, but not since probably 2009. One thing I love about the scene where the cops paint in the carved words that you focused on in the episode is how it intends to get at the idea that redemption is a corporate endeavor. The criminal has to pay his dues, but also the police work to help him pay, to help him on the road to bettering himself, and therefore society. I think that also must have some implications to our faith, and how redemption works out within the church. So good thoughts, Seth. I kind of wish that we had had him on the episode when we discussed the movie. That was a, a really good insight. <laughs> oh no, that that's really great, and it's it's
1: so cool uh, to see us. You know, when we when we do these kind of retro reviews, uh, that, that they're kind of out there. They're kind of evergreen in a sense that someone can watch a film and then. Uh, say um, you know, I can listen to Wade and Kevin's podcast episode, and so yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. And once again, I'll say for the hundredth time, our South Korean marathon was was a plus. Like I really, I just enjoyed it, had a great time. I also want to remind listeners uh, about uh, Christ and pop culture. Christ in pop culture is. Uh, the group that really kind of helped put this podcast together, they're always so supportive for us. Or They host the podcast and give us guidance and, and all that stuff. It's, it's really wonderful. And you can actually become a member of Christ and Pop Culture. That's another way to support the podcast. Maybe you want to channel your dollars that way. We would, we would love that too. A lot of great stuff on Christ And when you support them, you support great content. Just a couple days ago, Scott uh, Tuberville wrote an article for Christ in Pop Culture on the movie The Quarry. Uh, I'm not the one who can forgive, is the title of the article, The Quarry and the Hopefulness of Violent Grace. Now, that film is from director and screenwriter Scott Teams. and there's, according according to Scott, a very Flannery O'Connor vibe to the movie, which... Excites me. I have not seen the picture yet, but uh, after this write-up, I I probably should make it a priority to, to get to it here pretty soon.
0: Yeah, I actually have not read the article yet because I'm really interested in seeing the quarry and I I want to make sure to see it for myself before reading any criticism on it. But that description is intriguing for sure. And it makes sense that it would be said about something created by Scott Teams who, Wade, you and I uh, both really liked the show that he was the head writer for Rectify. So it's really exciting that Teams is... Moving into uh, feature film making and uh, kind of pre- uh, directing his own scripts and and uh, really presenting his vision that way, it's a film that I'm really looking forward to getting around to.
1: Yes, listeners, we appreciate all the help that you offer us. You can go to our Patreon page, or if you'd like to subscribe to Christ and Pop Culture, go to christandpopculture.com. Great stuff everywhere. We'll be back in just a moment. Will Ferrell. Okay.
0: second segment and wait sweat is now pouring down my face as I still have not been able to move because I'm wearing this ungainly uh Nordic costume. There's all sorts of uh appendages and and weird fabrics going on here. So I'm really looking forward to getting through this second segment so I can finally just take it take it off and get back into some normal clothes.
1: (laughs) You know, to be a good artist you gotta put in you gotta put in the work. You gotta, gotta make yourself for my art. You gotta make yourself uncomfortable. So I, I'm sorry for you, but at the same time, uh, you should have done it a long time ago.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. If this sounds like a weird intro to the second segment, listeners, that's because in the second segment, we are going to be talking about a weird movie. It's the new Will Ferrell starring comedy for Netflix titled Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Will Ferrell stars as Lars Eriksang, a an Icelander who, since he was a little boy, dreamed of going to the song and dance competition slash costuming extravaganza slash uh, variety show known as Eurovision. With his friend Sigrid as an adult, they finally make their way to the big show only to find out that they are not just the underdogs, they're maybe also the laughingstocks. Lars is driven by a desire to prove himself once and for all to his disapproving father, played by Pierce Brosnan. Sigrid is trying to find her own artistic voice and maybe get Lars to finally make a move on her. And the rest of the Eurovision contestants are just there to be their extremely colorful selves. So, Wade, this is a movie that almost depends, at least in part, on the audience kind of being along for the ride with what Eurovision kind of means and what kind of fun it can be gleaned from it. My question for you is, what was your level of familiarity with the phenomenon of Eurovision before seeing this movie? And how do you think that level of familiarity affected how your enjoyment of this film?
1: Yeah, so I I have basically uh, zero knowledge of Eurovision. I, I've I've heard it's like a competition, but I. <laughs> what's funny is I watched this movie and I. I guess I thought it was just kind of a normal, like Eurovision is just kind of this normal song competition, but and this is an exaggerated version of that. But now you're saying like. I guess Eurovision does have a lot of like weird costumes and and you know, extravaganza and all this stuff. So uh, it shows how little I know about the the actual event. Uh, I, I don't know if that affected it too much. I I I went into the film looking for something dumb and goofy but funny. And I think for the most part it it, it, it probably delivered. It's a it's a below average Comedy, but it's probably one of the better Will Ferrell comedies that I've seen in in a while. So I don't know. I guess that's saying something. <laughs> Man, that is, that is that that
0: I don't know. That sounds like it's almost damning with faint praise. I mean, it's not a very good comedy, but it's one of the better Will Ferrell comedies I've seen. It's like,
1: well, ouch. I've seen recently, recently. Now he's got some he's got some better ones in the past, but like. You know, some of his 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 films as of late have not been all that wonderful.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I actually kicked off our discussion with a a query about how familiar were you were with Eurovision before seeing this movie was because I I wasn't super familiar with it going to into this film. Um, I knew a little bit about. I think I'd seen a YouTube clip of some of the more outrageous acts that had uh, been on there. Uh, in the past, so I, I kind of knew what its its deal was, at least a little bit, but I had never actually watched, watched it live, I've never really participated in any sort of the subculture surrounding it, and I found myself wondering, after I finished this film, and even while I was watching it, I was thinking, I kind of feel like this movie is almost a fans-only proposition to really get on its wavelength. I, I think that anybody could potentially watch a comedy about Eurovision and enjoy it without necessarily being familiar with the the phenomenon. I don't think that just anybody can watch this movie about Eurovision and get on, on, it, on its wavelength. I just, I don't think that this is all that funny, and I, I wasn't really able to get a handle on, since I'm, I'm not familiar with Eurovision, just how much this film is meaning to to tweak the the event that it's portraying. You think of a, a mockumentary like this is spinal tap or best in show, where there's this whole subculture that Christopher Guest and his uh, collaborators, are satirizing and poking fun at like hair metal or com- you know dog competitions. There are subcultures that have built up around this, and you get the sense watching them that even even if you're not familiar with them on an intimate level, you kind of you get the gist of them and you get what is being made fun of and what is being seen with affection. And I think the problem for me with Eurovision Song Contest is watching this film. I don't really. It doesn't neatly. Uh, make that clear to the uninitiated. Watching this, I, I wasn't quite sure, am I supposed to think this song is funny? Am I supposed to kind of be enjoying, enjoying it? Like, it, it's it's like watching this is Spinal Tap and not being sure if you're supposed to laugh at the leprechauns on stage and the, you know, 12-inch high Stonehenge. If Spinal Tap were working like that, I feel like it would be a much lesser movie, and I think that That's sort of what's going on with Eurovision, where it's kind of amusing, but it's never really that funny. And I think part of it is that uh, the film just doesn't really seem to have any jokes to make of, of this film. It's not so much a comedy as a musical, but it seems like it wants to be a comedy. And I think that kind of disconnect is where it falls down.
1: Yeah, it definitely wants to be a comedy. And the first half of the film, I think, succeeds better than the second half of, of being funny. We get this, after this kind of prelogue. we get a, a great music video with uh, both characters, Farrell and uh, Mick Adams, and they're they're at what looks to be Iceland in this sort of a volcanic island, and Will Farrell is dressed up as this Viking, and they're singing this silly song, and I, I thought that was pretty funny. I think there are some lines of dialogue that, that are funny. Will Ferrell, he helped to write this picture with Andrew Steele. And so it, it definitely possesses the, the silliness and, and maybe even the commitment that Will Ferrell brings. It, even if I don't like Will Ferrell, I have to acknowledge that when he goes for something, he goes, he goes 100%. I mean, he's the guy that thought it would be funny to be in a Lifetime movie and play it straight, and he did. He was in a terrible Lifetime movie, and he played it absolutely straight with, I believe it was Kristen Wiig. And it's dumb, but it's kind of meta in a way, and he, he went 100%. I think I think that there are moments in this movie where I feel that, and, and I enjoy that, and there is some improv to it, but I think the, the camera is a little more focused if I can use that word, uh, is a little more, uh, intentional from, from Dobkin. So it has, it it possesses a number of elements that are working for it. I I think, I think where it just kind of runs off the road for me is it just feels, it's just tropey. It's just kind of cliche. Like you, you know that certain characters are going to fight, uh, they're going to go their separate ways and then they're going to want to come, come back together. I mean, it's just kind of how it is. And so when you get to certain parts of the movie, uh, I just kind of wanted to forward through those parts because I'm like, okay, we get it, we get it, we get it. Let's get to where we want to go. And those are the performances. And I think the performances are, are pretty funny. I think they're kind of outlandish. Uh, like I said, I don't know about Eurovision, but they're just kind of big and bold, and so I, I enjoyed those. But the character drama and some of this other stuff, I it, it just doesn't work, and the comedy's not there that second half to really carry
0: this along. It does feel a little bit like a collection of, of bits, right like it doesn't it doesn't seem as if there's any sort of organizing idea behind the film other than that well let's make a, a comedy about Eurovision and Will Ferrell will will be in it and everybody will be wearing outrageous costumes and it's going to be funny because all of those things are funny in the abstract and i think the problem is it never really gets beyond that point where it would be like well wouldn't it be funny if Will Ferrell had a ponytail and was running in a giant hamster wheel. I mean, yes, potentially, and it is kind of amusing when it happens. But I don't really. It doesn't really. I've I've talked about how in comedy it kind of helps to have there be sort of this crescendo where it feels like there's a trajectory that the filmmakers are building towards, so that when there's a punchline or a payoff scene, it really, you know, it, you you really get that that belly laugh that you're you're going for. And I think a lot of problems with, with lazy comedies is they don't really have that kind of sense of trajectory. They just sort of have a funny bit here and there that really kind of lives or dies based on, you know, how well it tickles a particular person's funny bone, but it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of craft there, which is a shame because I really do like a lot of what the supporting cast is doing here. Um, Rachel McAdams isn't supporting. She's a co-lead, but she is really funny in this film. And part of it is just because she just commits to her role so hard. And she's able to kind of bring the same sort of wide-eyed uh presence that she brought to her role in Game Night, where she's just very, she's just all in, completely committed. There's no winking at the camera. There's no she's she's not really doing anything really big like will farrell i feel like will farrell kind of his talent is um going going really large and sort of just really just being loud and and out there and that sometimes works i think mcadams really just sort of approaches it much more like like an actor like it's it's less about being funny for her and more about just finding a character in this this weird person who believes in killer elves and uh, I think it for the most part really works with her I just wish that there was a better movie around her
1: yeah no she's great and I, I love Game Night. I've talked about it before. And she's really wonderful in that. She's wonderful in this. I want her to do more, more comedy. And I think her and for and all, I think, I think they're really good. And when the film is like, okay, we're just gonna be random and silly because all of this this whole this whole stick we're doing is kind of silly. Let's just let's just be outlandish. Let's have elves. Let's have a severed hand fly off of a boat, uh, and it, and and we can kind of be happy that it did, but not you know that whole deal. If you see the movie, you know it. Um, we can we can sing the the song "Happy" um, in in this Icelandish bar, like when it's just like that, or when they're telling an officer to like be cool, be a cool police officer, just be cool. That's really funny. But it just—it seems like there are these grooves here in this in this comedy genre where it's like, okay, we've got like we're we're kind of stuck here and we just gotta go in this direction and um and and that really kind of messes up because as you mentioned, the bits are funny. You know, when Will Ferrell is shouting out Americans when he's saying Jamba Juice and, and all this, like that's that works and I think that's what keeps me in this film. And then part of it is I. I think right now we need more dumb, silly comedies. I think that's what the world needs at this moment, and so I'm happy to see this film come along. And I was I, I was tracking for a little bit, but it's just it's kind of long. It's longer than it needs to be, probably by like 20 minutes, and uh, it just doesn't sustain that hope. That from in my mind, that hopeful beginning.
0: There's a lot in this movie that interrupts its momentum, I think. There's, you know, kind of this this romantic subplot between Lars and Sigrid that I don't know, it, it doesn't really feel like it's all that important because there there's not a whole lot of romantic chemistry there to begin with and it doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot of reason for them to feel romantic feelings for each other. It's more they they both kind of they they have these dreams of playing in Eurovision and finding their artistic voice, and that kind of seems like enough. So kind of this detour that the film takes, where uh, Sigret thinks that Lars has been sleeping with another Eurovision contestant, even though he, you know, he's only interested in the music. Like that, it's just it feels like a detour that is unnecessary and doesn't really go anywhere particularly meaningful because, you know, like you said, there's kind of this cliched trajectory that they take back to each other. And that just, it doesn't seem like it feels all that meaningful. Similarly, there's this mid-film kind of medley of songs where all the Eurovision contestants are in this one mansion and they go through this almost karaoke number where they just kind of sing a bunch of pop hits together and... Maybe if I were familiar with Eurovision, I would would recognize some of the cameos that we get in that scene. But other than that, it just kind of feels like a bunch of people I don't know singing auto-tuned versions of pop hits and it goes on for like six minutes and it, it just, it kind of stops the film dead in its tracks when I really just want to see some some jokes in my comedy, I guess. And that seems to be asking too much from this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like I mentioned, I don't know if it was last week or a couple, a couple weeks ago, is uh, humor covers uh, many uh, evils, many mistakes. And I think humor could have covered so many uh, mistakes in in this picture. I, I will say this. There was one moment in the film, and I, I think the big crescendo, climax of the movie, it works pretty well, where uh, a character, I won't say who, embraces their country. They embrace Iceland despite it not necessarily leading maybe to victory or to commercial success. And there there's a nugget there about commercial success within art and possibly within music competitions. And I liked how the film sort of res- resolved that and I wish we could have gotten maybe maybe a little bit more because that big ending it involves Rachel McAdams uh, is good and partly is because she's so good. even when she's you know playing it straight and performing and singing, she does a fantastic job and just kind of makes those scenes pop.
0: Yeah, that is a a nice climactic music number and I feel like it would have it would have hit harder if maybe the film had made more of a focus on the idea of what Iceland means to these characters and specifically to Sigrid. I don't know, it almost feels to me here's here's the thing maybe is that this film kind of feels like Sigrid should be the protagonist. But because Will Ferrell is in it, Will Ferrell has to be the protagonist, and Lars is just not very interesting. <laughs> and so, so the fact that we get this climactic number where we get a payoff for Rachel McAdams' character and not Ferrell's character really throws into sharp relief. Well, why isn't the entire movie about her and not whatever father issues that Lars has? I just, it just, it doesn't feel like the film knows what it wants to be. At, at the end of the day and I think that's a problem oh yeah Pierce Brosnan's in it and i'm thinking oh yeah <laughs> i'm thinking oh this could be
1: really funny you know he plays this kind of straight character uh in this movie and he's serious but everything's just wild around him oh this could be a lot of fun but it isn't <laughs> it just it's like oh he's you know he has father issues it's kind of it's kind of the deal with a music movie your father has to disapprove of your your choice to follow your dreams and that's it and I I I wanted more from him and I just didn't get it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess though we we do have to talk about the songs here Wade. The, this I mentioned earlier this feels almost more like a musical than it feels like a comedy to me and that's because a good portion of the film is devoted to uh, the musical numbers from Lars and Sigrid, but also from some of the other Eurovision contestants. Dan Stevens plays Alexander Lemtov, this way over the top Russian, you know, heartthrob singer, um, and I, th- I think he's really good in it. But I am curious to know the songs that all these characters sing. Like, how how do those work for you? Did you at least find yourself uh, enjoying the the songs, tapping your foot through them, uh, what have you?
1: I, I thought they were fine. I, I thought they were fine. I I guess I was I guess I was looking for a little bit more to them. So a movie that I don't really recommend to many people because it is pretty raunchy, but Pop Star never stop stopping. Uh, that movie never, never stop, never, ne, stop. never stop, never stopping. That movie is really funny. I, like I said, I'm not going to recommend it to a lot of people because it is pretty raunchy. But in their performances, the songs are so they're just written in such a way they're funny. I I have listened to some of those songs just while I was driving because they are so they're just so funny. So it's it involves the performance, but it also involves the lyrics. They're absurd. They're weird. They they play off of tropes within the current top forty hits. That's a great example of 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 their songs really doing well to enhance that film. That's not really happening. That's not happening at all here. So okay, they're they're fine, and the performance is is kind of fun, and and. and I do enjoy those scenes because the camera's kind of swooping around and, and like I said, Rachel McAdams is, is funny and Will Ferrell, he's pretty funny in some of those scenes, but, but the music is, is not going to really do anything to further this along. It's just, it's just kind of there.
0: It's interesting that you brought up the, uh, pop star film and the lonely Island in general, you know, the Andy Samber, Yarma Takone and, uh, they're, the thing about The Lonely Island is their songs are both... They're, they're fun songs just kind of on a musical level. They're they're decent examples of the genre that they're trying to be. But they're also just lyrically, they're, they are very funny. There are good jokes in them, or they lampoon a certain kind of song really well. And I feel like um, the songs in Eurovision are actually pretty good exemplars of a certain kind of Euro pop cheesy kind of kind of big number, um, so they they work on love that level. I think the problem is they're just lyrically they 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 don't really find a way to be both a plausible example of a pop song while also kind of lampooning them. That I think the Lonely Island as a group has sort of turned into a science. I will say though, in Eurovision's defense that. Uh, the Alexander Luntov song the the Dan Stevens Russian singer he has got he's got the song called Lion of Love that I have to oh, yeah. admit has kind of been stuck in yeah. my head for the last four days. So I mean, Credit where credits do. That's that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. No. No. That's. I. I, I think that one's. Uh. It, it's worthwhile. I forgot about that one. I was thinking of. Uh. Just. Uh, Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell. But. But yeah, Dan Stevens. He. He does a good job here. You mentioned how you liked his performance, and he's. I. I think he's really funny, listeners. That is our review of Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga. That's the last time I'm going to say that in this episode. You can catch the film on Netflix; it's currently streaming. If you do, we would love to hear your thoughts. Whether you liked it, you hate it, you thought it was a nice escape, or uh, it really sent you down a dark spiral—whatever it was—make sure to tweet us <laughs> at SeeBelievePod at SeeBelievePod. You can also email us: Seeing and Believing, capc at Gmail. We have reached the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. Before we head out, we want to recommend something from the world of television and or film to help you get through the week. Each of us has a recommendation. Kevin, what is your recommendation on this episode?
0: Well, you you said that uh, the world, like right now what we need is more light, dumb comments, (laughs) Wade. And I, I agree that those are helpful to have in... Uh, the times that we're in right now. And I do feel like the last few comedies we've reviewed on the show I've been a little bit down on. So I wanted to make sure to recommend a a nice light comedy that, that I think is really great just to you know, show that I'm not a complete joyless grump. Um, I had the chance recently to catch up with the 1936 film My Man Godfrey, directed by Gregory LaCava and starring the great William Powell and Carol Lombard. This is a romantic comedy about uh, starring Powell as a, a down-and-out man who's been living essentially in a garbage dump who gets picked up by this rich family uh, who kind of Originally, pick him up to to win a scavenger contest with their other rich friends, and then they find that William Powell's character Godfrey is actually uh, very, very, very intelligent and very self-possessed, and he becomes their butler. And what follows is this uh, straight man sort of situation where William Powell is the only sane person in this mansion filled with insane rich people it's uh an utterly charming film uh very fun and if you're looking for some good old golden age hollywood you uh you can't do much better than my man godfrey
1: i I saw you posted about the film on letterboxd and uh i have not seen it so i was like okay i need to add this to my
0: my watch list yeah it's 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 currently on Amazon Prime, so it's oh. it's pretty easy to find. Okay,
1: okay, yeah, yeah. So I'll have to uh, i have to get to that. I, I there's just so many there's so many good classic movies I haven't seen, and uh, I need to, I, I think we all need something lighter. Uh, so my recommendation this week I, I mentioned uh, the Lonely Island crew and how it's a little difficult to recommend some of their stuff. I will recommend this. This is from them. Uh, it kind of is a little raunchy, so, so some of you might not be interested, uh, but it debuted on Netflix. is called The Lonely Island Presents the Unauthorized Bash Brothers Experience. So this is from uh, Akiva Schaefer and Mike Diva. Of course it stars Andy Sandberg and the The Lonely Island crew. And uh, this is a kind of this visual rap poem uh, to uh, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire's uh, time at the Oakland A's. So if you're a baseball fan, uh, you know about the Bash Brothers. And I was I did not watch the Bash Brothers when they were the Bash Brothers. I watched them afterwards, and after they had gone uh, their their separate ways. Uh, this is a, a a funny short. It's thirty minutes, and uh, we get jokes about steroids and all that, but also about uh, this sort of steroid-fueled macho masculinity uh, with some uh, baseball history involved. So uh, if you're interested in that, you can check that out on Netflix. It's the Unauthorized Bash Brothers Experience. And I do have to say, too, Kevin, we're really thinking about movies we're looking forward to. Andy Samberg has a movie coming out called Palm Springs here soon, and I'm excited about that. So uh, time to brush up on my Andy Samberg uh, history, and maybe that's that that way <laughs> for some other listeners, too.
0: Yeah, I'm not familiar with with that recommendation, so I'll definitely have to check it out. I'm a fan of the the Lonely Island's body of work, so I am looking forward to uh, checking out uh, this as well.
1: Yes, definitely do that. Like I mentioned, it's on Netflix. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out the episode this week. We would encourage you to rate and review us on iTunes. That always helps. If you listen on Spotify, we're on Spotify now, Stitcher, make sure to rate and review us there. This episode is brought to you by Christandpopculture.com. Our producer is, as always, Jonathan Clausen, who every single week helps us to search for the Sacred on Screen. We appreciate you, Jonathan. I'm Wade Beard and my co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see
0: you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at Christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons license 3.0. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bows episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bows podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.